Hello and welcome to Intrigue Explained, a show where former Australian diplomats break down international news and try to make it accessible as well as offering their own hot takes. On this episode, we review the latest developments in the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine and grapple with some of the hard questions facing policymakers in Kiev and in the West. We look at President Zelensky's recent trip to Washington DC, the state of Ukraine war funding in the US and the European Union, grapple with the ceasefire debate, and discuss what might happen next. It was frankly a heavy conversation at times, but I think a really useful one and a good faith opportunity to tackle some really hard questions. I hope you find it useful. Hello and welcome. With me, not like last week, but like the week before last week, is Dmitry Grozbinski, the director of the trade negotiations platform Explain Trade. Afternoon, evening, Dmitry in Geneva. How are you? I'm well, I am recovering from my fractured shoulder, but luckily my mouth still works so I can podcast. That's just thrilling news for us. And yes, that's why we weren't able to podcast last week. Dimitri had a slight snow and ice mishap as winter rolls in Europe and uh, did some damage to his shoulder, but he's sitting there in a sling and assures us that we're not putting him through unnecessary pain by allowing him, giving him platform to spout his views. I think he missed it last week, Dimitri. I did. You never put me through physical pain. Quite. Of course, also with me is Helen. Helen is always back from a trip when we record these, and Helen this time is maybe, what, a four or five days back from a trip to Dubai for the COP28 negotiations. Helen, how was that, and how are you? I think I fully drank the Kool-Aid uh, of the UAE situation, and I thought it was a really big success. I had a roaring great time, and I am only just recovering, so I'll leave that there. We thought it would be a good time to investigate a couple of the questions around the Russian invasion of Ukraine, take stock of where we're at. A lot has happened since the summer. And it's not making the front page news like it used to. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about some of the things that are going on in the EU and, and in the US regarding funding for Ukraine, military aid for Ukraine, Zelensky's kind of world tour, not a nice way to put it, but begging for money, really. And then ask some delicate questions around what's next and, and how did this end? So with that, why don't we get stuck in? It's 658 days since... The invasion began on February 24, 2002. We all remember that day and that watching in disbelief as the columns sat on the outside of Kiev for a couple of weeks there. That's 658 days, which is remarkable, really. And I think, again, most people who pay vague attention will know that the war has settled into a very uneasy stalemate. The front lines are pretty stable. And by pretty stable, we mean exchanging hundreds of yards up to a kilometer, but not really much more than that. Soldiers are still dying in horrific numbers as they fight across the front. Obviously, Ukraine had the summer counteroffensive, which we'll get into about success, failure, all that kind of stuff. But it's fair to say it didn't take back much territory, much Ukrainian territory in the east. And there's a couple of battles right now, front lines that are hot, and we might discuss those. But Dimitri, why don't you give us a bit of an, a summary of where the war, like the military element of the war is? Like, where, where are they fighting? Where are the hotspots on the front lines? And was, was I right in saying that territory is exchanging hands at, at, in the tens to the hundreds of yards rather than tens to hundreds of kilometers? Yeah, you absolutely were. I think where the war is settled into is it, it's not that it's a stalemate so much as it's a grinding war of attrition. You have two sides with layers of prepared defenses and quite a lot of ability to neutralize advancing threats. So what you're seeing all across the front lines is that when either side attempts to launch offensive operations, 
there are enough drones in the air to identify that. And there is enough combination of mines and artillery, as well as uh, FPV drones and other tools that can do a tremendous amount of damage to that uh, advancing force before it can make significant amounts of ground. So what you effectively have is a situation where neither side can make fast breakthroughs in order to take anything. Both sides have to basically pound the other side's positions completely flat, devoid of all life and cover, in order to hopefully take it a little bit and then push the front. Russia is throwing a huge amount of troops specifically at taking a fairly tactically important town called Vika, and they are making very slow progress, but seemingly willing to lay down just an obscene amount of lives and technology in order to take it. And we're talking, just let me cut in there for a second, we're talking the eastern part of Ukraine. So if folks have seen that map, it's right along the river. Is that right? And in the southeast area, is, is that right, Dimitri? Paint a picture of the geography for us. That's exactly right. So you've got you've got Advuka, which is say say, say that again. How do you say that town? That would help me for my future conversations. I'm not sure I'm doing it right. So I pronounce it Advivka. Okay, there we go. That's how I would have said it too. That's this is Ukrainian who didn't grow up in Ukraine. I'm sure I'm butchering pronunciations left and center. (laughs) I can hit the hard consonants like 10 percent better than you can, which makes me feel like a local, but um, not quite there yet. And so, meanwhile, at the same time, you had. Ukrainian Marines secure a little bit of a foothold across the Dnieper River, a little bit further north. And you had some fairly important developments vis-a-vis pushing the Russian fleet effectively out of Sevastopol and mm. limiting its ability to operate in the Black Sea, which is important, but it doesn't return oblasts to Ukraine. And they've been largely unsuccessful in trying to break that land bridge to Crimea for Russia, right? But the, the whole point was to drive south and hit the Sea of, is it Sea of Azov? I think it's there. And then it's stop Russia being able to hold Crimea from both ends, as it were, if people are familiar with the geography. But they haven't been able to do that, right? Because obviously- No, not- they haven't been able to do that. The positions they were assaulting were had time to become very heavily defensible. Yeah, like trenches and anti-tank mines and all that Just stuff, Just obscene right? numbers of mines. Like there are areas yeah. there where there are like four mines per square meter, which is just like an insane sentence to say out loud. Yeah. We don't have Princess Diana way, anymore to go and pick them all up in the future. It's terrible. That's right. <laughs> Insert Cater, Princess of, uh, of Wales, uh, Duchess of Wales, actually. But if you think about how fertile that soil is and how much work is going to be required to demine that entire I area, think it's I think there's so right? it's going to be exactly it's going to be impossible. But also the soil rejuvenation—I don't know if that's a scientific term—but in, in order to recover the soil to a point you can produce agricultural output, that's going to be a huge problem for Ukraine and for the rest of us who want to eat bread. Yeah, and the kids are going to be kids are going to be hitting this stuff. For- oh yeah. Which we've seen what's happened in other areas where there have been significant deployments of landmines. And Cambodia, they're pulling them up, Vietnam, it, those areas. Yeah. It, the scale of the demining effort, however the war ends or stalemates or freezes, the scale of the demining effort is going to be unbelievable. Okay, let's move a little bit towards Kiev. And I actually will be learning from both of you here. There's been political weirdness going on there, right? We've had the chief of the general staff, and, and again, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, the, the, gen, the general in charge, seemingly at odds with Zelensky about 
um, the reality of the war, saying things like the counteroffensive has stalled and we need to be re- like a little bit realistic about it. I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he wanted to paint a picture of, we haven't failed, but let's be realistic. We haven't succeeded in the way that maybe we would have liked to before the summer. And Zelensky rebuked him. This was a couple of weeks ago. What's your sense, either of you, of the internal politics in Ukraine? Do you think there is a rupture between folks there saying, hey, we, we need to be realistic or keep the optimistic kind of war footing? I think fundamentally they have two very different jobs, right? Zelensky's role is to keep the morale, whether that publicly out projecting that sort of strength and projecting optimism to the rest of the world. He is selling hope and resilience to the rest of the world. And so he has to be selling that and drinking his own Kool-Aid. We've seen that with his world tour around Latin America and the US. And fundamentally, obviously, that is not representative of what's happening on the ground. So I think that there comes a very natural point in which there's going to be fracture in how they present the war and how they go about strategically talking about it. So I can imagine the, I'm also not going to try and pronounce the name, but the general, the sort of military establishment. His first name I know is like Valerie, I think, right? I can say that Let's go with Valerie. That I can do. Thank you, John. Yeah, good assist. That I can do. And I think that he, of course, would be really pissed off about that and feeling like you were not in the trenches and rolling up your sleeves in the same way that the first stages of the war looked. I don't know. What do you reckon, Dimitri? Listen, it's hard to read the dynamics of internal politics in Ukraine, I think there's a couple of things going on. One thing, this has now been going on for a very long time. And it's also, we should say, it's it's also never entirely clear how great a fracture it is. Absolutely. There were persistent rumors he was about to be dismissed, but he wasn't. This has been going on for a while. The country is under immense amount of stress. The military is under immense amount of strain. And the president is under immense amount of strain. It's natural that there are going to be tensions. There's also this constant challenge for Ukraine. And I think, Helen, you hit the nail on the head there. There's an expectations management game, and there is a talking it up game. There's a sense in which Zelensky has to go around the world going, if you give us this next shipment, we will do something with it. That is notable. But there is also a sense in which the military has to be like, listen, there are four landmines per square meter. 30 long-range HIMARS missiles or whatever the last U.S. shipment was isn't going to fundamentally change the reality of the fact there are hundreds of thousands of Russian troops and probably close to a million landmines between us and the Russian border. And we are doing our best, but it's incredibly hard going. The other thing to add is just that Russia has really cottoned on to a lot of the asymmetry and this asymmetric type of fighting that Ukraine had started off the war with. Russia is now caught up with that hardware-wise and software-wise as well. So I think that is, that's going to be difficult because the long game is for Russia to really just wait out Ukraine and to wait out the Western support for Ukraine. And that's almost, I think, where we're, we're headed right now. It, it depends on how you define, I think we're going to get into this, how you define what Russia's objectives at the moment actually are, because the the war currently looks the way it looks, because we've now moved it from a point of judging the outcome of the war by how much territory Russia has taken and is taking, which is where we were at the start. We're like, can Russia take Kiev was the question for the first two months of the war. Can Russia make a breakthrough? Then in the lead up to the counteroffensive, especially following the first successful counteroffensive and the retaking of Kherson, the pushing Russian troops away from Kharkiv, it had flipped on its head. 
And now the expectations game is, can Ukraine push Russia out of its territory? So at the moment, the war is in this stage where Russia has been throwing a huge amount of resources at Advivka and has made crawling progress at massive cost. The problem for the West and Ukraine is that Russia appears to be willing to bear that cost. And as you alluded to there, Russia feels like Ukraine is on a ticking shot clock to use what I assume is a hockey metaphor, John. <laughs> is it goal? One of those things. They have to shoot the penalty. I don't know. They have to make visible progress before they lose their Western support and lifeline. Whereas if Russia is just willing to lay down enough bodies, it, can, it has more capacity to wait out. That seems to be where we're at. I, I'm striking you off my sports WhatsApp chat groups, Dimitri. That was that that really betrayed your lack of knowledge and lack of care for the for all things sport. But I something that's been striking me recently is Ukraine's kind of turning into a to two countries. You've got Western Ukraine, where I'm not saying I certainly don't want to say life as usual is going on because Russia's sending missiles in there pretty regularly and there's air raid sirens going off in Lviv and all that kind of stuff. So it's not like they're living as they were, but the reality in Western Ukraine is a very different reality than the folks who are close to, or even in the East or the South and close to the front lines. I, I've been in, in London for the week and, and chatting with folks who have companies where they say, oh, our whole tech team is in Ukraine. And that's not possible for big companies to outsource their digital infrastructure to a, a country that's at war or it in my head, it shouldn't be. be like, oh, we need to make changes because that's a real risk. But the reality is you still can because the west of the country is a very different proposition to, to the east. So do you see any way that Ukraine doesn't become that bifurcated society after this is over? It really feels like there's going to be east-west Germany vibes almost after the wall came down. It's a really interesting question. I would say I'm not as worried about that in part because... If nothing else, the very act of having conscription for a war like this effectively creates a unity of mm. the country in that everyone's got skin in the game. Everyone knows probably a lot of people who are rotating through the front lines. And thus, it's not a situation where you have East Ukraine fighting for its life and Western Ukraine just hanging out and paying taxes and so contributing that way. So I do think there is that kind of unification. I think what might be a bigger split is the refugee community, the significant multi-million strong refugee community that left Ukraine, who have maintained various levels of, of ties back, some of whom go back all the time. I know people here on refugee visas who are constantly going back, some of whom fully intend to return as soon as it's safe to do so. Others who have really made a life uh, wherever they've settled and have no intention of going back. I think I suspect in the long term that is going to cause some tensions and divisions as it inevitably. Well, and the brain drain that Ukraine's suffering, that presumably the folks who are moving and, and uh, having productive lives elsewhere are the people who could be some of the more productive people in Ukraine and rebuild Ukraine or be participating in Ukraine, right? And if they are settling elsewhere, which by the way, is exactly what I would do in that situation because you can't put your life on hold for three years, but it's a problem in the future you'd have to think for Ukraine. 
Again, Hard to know, I say this so completely without judgment, and we're painting with an incredibly broad brush. Of course. When we're talking about who left Ukraine as refugees, we're talking about grandmothers, we're talking about people with small kids, we're talking about pacifists who would like never put up, pick up a gun under any circumstance. Like there's a whole bunch of people who left and it's possible to say that kind of thing, but I think that's going to be, you know, inevitably this is going to be a society that is for a while going to be divided between people who fought and those who didn't. They have this kind of situation as was Europe and the UK after World War II and World War I and this kind of stuff. Yeah. I just think it's important to think about those questions because we're going to get onto it a bit later, but it's the kind of what next questions are so complex. It's very easy to just think, oh, fighting stops, but boy, that's when, that's when all this other stuff starts to kick in. But before we get there, Helen, you're based in DC. Zelensky, President Zelensky was just there, what, earlier this week, I think on Monday it was, or, or something like that. Really cap in hand kind of meeting with the Republicans to try and convince them to release the Ukrainian funding. The background here is that Republicans have attached certain conditions to passing further aid for Ukraine, notably domestic immigration issues against the, attaching it to the Biden administration, getting them to do something on that. What was your sense in DC of A, how he was received? Are people sick of him, to be, to be blunt and crass? Or are people blaming the Republicans and the, the US political system for being cravenly political with an issue that's bigger than that? John, frankly, I think everyone is just exhausted. I think that's probably the best way to look at it. People are, I think people are sick of him in the sense that he doesn't get the same fanfare. There's certainly no press coverage. There's certainly no sort of like Ukrainian flags being flown around. The sense around town is like, all right, he's back. And this is now a domestic issue for the US as opposed to a we're united looking at the future of Ukraine issue like it was two years ago, right? You've seen that gradually just diminish. And he's now resorted to having, and then Zelensky is now resorted to getting agents of influence, not actually agents, people like David Cameron, as we'd mentioned, some of us from the injury media team went along to the Munich, uh, sorry, the asset security conference um, earlier this week, where David Cameron came out and spoke very strongly in favor of pushing the Republicans to support him, right? The talking points there from both people like David Cameron, who's currently back in the U UK's foreign secretary seat. And also those who are Dems supporting, supporting Zelensky say that the $60 billion that's required to foot the bill for Ukraine is going to be the cheapest deal or the best deal that you can get in Republican language to save the future of democracy. It's a talking point that literally everyone sort of cites back to you. I think Mitch McConnell made the best argument for this stuff where he's, he's again, you could call it callous because he's not saying, hey, we need to defend Ukrainians for human rights and all that kind of stuff. But he's making the the cold assessment of we're sending them stuff that we've got and we're pumping money into the American industrial, military industrial complex, which by the way, we've underinvested in for a, like a generation probably. Yeah. And we're yeah. going to have to probably fight a war at some point, maybe not in his lifetime, but in, but in our lifetimes <laughs> against potentially a, a big country and we are underdone. So what a way to spur the, the wheels of manufacturing in the arms industry than to say, hey, we're going to pump money into it. Again, it's callous, but it strikes me as if you want a national, American national interest argument for funding the war, that's it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know we don't want to weigh into this, the domestic politics side of things, but like Biden is in such a pinch right now. I don't think that leading up to the 2024 presidential elections is in a good place. He's got the Israel-Gaza situation breathing down his neck. He's losing Gen Z and millennial supporters. He is now being perceived as being weak on the national border, the domestic southern border. 
issue and he's about to get the inquiry for his impeachment and mm-hmm. it's just been approved. So this has not been a good year for the Dems and having to be back in town, hand, cap in hand, asking for this again, I think this round of his tour de force in DC has not been as well received. Certainly from a sort of observer, Gen- lowly observer like me. General vibes. Dimitri, EU version of that is their meeting today in the budget. There's an EU budget meeting yep. in which there's all these back and forths between the EU and Viktor Orban in Hungary about withdrawing aid or blocking aid to Ukraine in return for money to Hungary. What's the, again, same question to Helen, what's the kind of vibe in the EU and what does it hinge on? Do you think they're getting sick of Ukraine to be, again, crass? So I think there's a very different vibe. In the, in the US, what you saw is there's a kind of inevitable political gravity in any adversarial two-party political system where over the long term, anything one party supports, the other side, there are incentives for the other side to oppose more and more fiercely. And we definitely saw that with Ukraine to, to the point where it you could see it moving through the right-wing e- media ecosystem, these talking points gained speed, and even Republican representatives who were very supportive increasingly found themselves opposing this. And I don't necessarily think it's hugely like substance substantive. It is just that every incentive in the U.S. political system is to draw a distinction between you and the other guy wherever possible, which is why you only get a small handful of people remaining like your Mitt Romneys, like your McConnells, who really don't have too much to fear from perhaps the base who can stake out a position and everyone else gets pushed further and further up. In the EU, you had a you have a different dynamic playing out. So first of all, I think it's really important to make a distinction between EU funds, as in funds by the European Union and individual member state funds. So Denmark has just announced an absolutely huge military contribution to to Ukraine's five billion dollars worth, which is for like Denmark, given the comparative size, is huge. So. A, a number of individual member states, be they be they France, be they even Germany, are still contributing. But they're generally contributing equipment and hardware, right? Rather than cold hard cash. Is that right? Uh, so the EU has contributed more cash, considerably more cold hard cash. And when we say cash, uh, these are loan guarantees and transfers. But the EU, both as a whole and as individual member states, have contributed more money to Ukraine's budget than the US has. The majority of U.S. contributions have been military equipment. The EU has done more to keep civil servants employed. That's just the way it's broken down. I think in large part because the European Union just doesn't have 4,000 Bradley armored fighting vehicles slowly rusting in the desert. Plus, the president is less able to transfer money than he is able to transfer military equipment. It's just, again, just because of the way the U.S. The US system, system works. works, yeah. He could do that without quite as much congressional involvement. But on the EU side, you have this dynamic where Viktor Orban and the EU have been beefing for quite a long time. The EU has watched Hungary's slide into, if not outright authoritarianism, then certainly kind I think of- it's populism. I don't, I don't think it's fair to say quite authoritarianism because they still have Yes, he's undermining the rule of law for sure, but there is still functioning stuff like that. But I think it's populism in the way that you, uh, it, it could get there very easily. It, it's gotten bad and it was trending it worse. Yeah. Let's put it that way. The constant, 
attacks on the free press, the judiciary, exactly. our opposition parties were getting to the point where you can't quite claim it's a dictatorship or anything like that, but it no longer truly resembles a functioning democracy as we understand it. And the trend line was not in a positive direction. You don't have to squint too hard to see where it could go. Because of especially what Victor Obama was doing to the judiciary specifically and to rule of law specifically, the EU commission had frozen transfers of funds to Hungary. The EU, people may not realize this, part of the EU's function is to transfer money from richer EU states to poorer EU states in order to try to lift up the EU average level of development. And Hungary is a huge... In the same way that the US states, some are net givers to the country in taxes and some are net takers. It's that idea of trying to even out or smooth out the lowest and... But this is more explicit. This is more explicit. In the US, they would never say the role of California is to fix... To like send cash West to Virginia Mississippi. Exactly. It just happens because of the way Correct. contributions to the budget works versus government expenditures, where military bases are, all that kind of thing. In the EU, that's what's written on the policy name. It's a development fund. And so the EU has been holding those funds hostage a little bit against a set of reforms uh, in Hungary. And so that beef, combined with the fact that Orban has been fairly pro-Russia and fairly anti-Ukraine to begin with, all have coalesced in the last couple of weeks to the point where he is holding Ukraine aid hostage at the same time the EU is holding his money hostage, but he has made judicial reforms. So at the moment, they're playing this weird game where they're trying to say, well, can we, should we unlock some funds because he did do a lot of the things we asked him to do on the judiciary, but at the same time, he's holding up Ukraine money. So to simplify that very generally and probably not super accurately, but to send this aid to the U- to Ukraine, the EU needs consensus from all member states. Hungary is withholding that consensus or because it wants the money that has been frozen by the EU because it hasn't made the reforms the EU wants. Now, I'm sure it's more nuanced than that, but that's the lay of the land, roughly. But also, they don't particularly want to send money to Ukraine. And, all, and, and there are some alignments like, that this, they're happy not to. Helen, isn't he just being a smart politician? He comes from yeah, a small, relatively powerless country in Europe in terms of geopolitical heft. He has a vote. For some reason, you need consensus, not like 25 out of 27. You need every single last one. He's just playing his cards, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think if I were in his position, and we've seen this happen with like Turkey. Good an authoritarian you know, streak, Helen. You've always known that about me, John. <laughs> but if you look at sort of the way that Turkey, the Turkish president Erdogan had also played that card with Sweden entering NATO as well. I think this is what happens when you've got rule by consensus. You play your weaknesses as advantage. And I think Orban has done a great job of doing that. Very, I think, just looking at that very clinically. I No, I agree with both of your assessments on that. Okay, so let's take it to the next logical spot. You've got, let's call it a stalemate in Ukraine in in military terms. You've got a lot of fatigue, as we know, 658 days. We've got difficulties getting the Ukrainian war effort funded, both in the US, which is provided by far and away the most assistance, and the EU, which which would be second, or the European community countries. So there's this sense of, I think, not necessarily a fork in the road, but we're coming upon a, a real changing in the dynamics. And that is how, like, what, do you, what are we doing here? Are we just going to keep doing this for a year, two years, five years? Are we just throwing 
again, to be, we're all being a little bit clinical here, but I think this is the interesting part of the conversation is, are we throwing good money after bad in the sense of it's not going to change anything? More people are going to die. We're wasting cash. It's time to start thinking about exit strategies. Obviously, this is a complex conversation because at the end of the day, you don't get to pontificate in a podcast and tell Ukrainians, by the way, it's time to stop you fighting for your homeland. But if I were a Ukrainian, maybe I'd be wanting to be like, you know what, I'd like the world as it, as it should be, is that we swept through the East, we took back our lands and packed Putin off to the bloody gulags. The world as it is what I've just laid out there. So Dimitri, is it time to start talking about things like peace or ceasefires or stuff like that? Or are we still just not there yet because there's something that could change materially? I think the way that question is, it suggests that the reason we are not having constructive ceasefire talks is because some combination of Ukraine and the West have chosen not to have them. What we saw even today in Putin's marathon, incredibly scripted Q&A is that Russian objectives from the start of the war have not fundamentally changed yet. And he reaffirmed this today. Yep. At the, so Putin's preconditions for ceasefire, the last we've heard is he said, look, the precondition for even beginning that conversation is a reaffirmation of Russian sovereignty over the four oblasts that were annexed at the start of the war, as in formally under Russian law. So, and that Donetsk. includes huge... So Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporozhye. Mm. Now, Russia doesn't actually hold Control any of those, of those oblasts right? in their totality. Right. They've lost the capital of the Kherson oblast. Ukraine took it back. Huge chunk of Zaporozhye is still in Ukrainian hands. So the precondition for talks is Ukraine has to basically hand over hundreds of square kilometers. And so that, and, and the rhetoric, Putin's rhetoric has not dialed down from that. But surely that's just his opening gambit in negotiations. I, you say, and, I, and perhaps I'm incredibly naive here, but when Zelensky has been asked about peace or ceasefires, he's been incredibly strident in the other direction of not until we've taken back every last Ukrainian land. And now, aren't both of those, and again, I'm not equating them, I'm not doing any of that, but aren't those two positions of Zelensky and Putin opening gambits that can be walked back from? Or the, some the challenge is that I think really, in some ways, for, for both of them, it's not so much their opening gambits as preconditions for negotiations, for talks. And there is a distinctive difference, as you know, between yes. two things. And so it is very difficult to see how you begin that conversation when the price set, the price Zelensky is setting for sitting down across the table from him and talking about this kind of stuff is get the hell out of my country and take your troops with you. The price being set by Putin for sitting down across the table from him and Give talking about peace is hand over these parts that I say are Russian now. And it's, so it's difficult to see how you begin that conversation. Th th this kind of notion that if Biden called Zelensky and said, listen, buddy, it's time to talk peace, Zelensky could just pick up the phone and forge a lasting peace is difficult to envisage. The other, I think, challenge that no one's ever been able to successfully answer is unless someone is willing to make security guarantees for Ukraine, how do you make a ceasefire last? Yeah. I think the other thing we need to also bring into this conversation, and maybe this will come later on, but the fact that like Russia's economy is actually doing so well 
since has well, been doing really well. Not as badly yeah. as folks have Not hoped. as badly as people have said, right? There were all these talks about the economy collapsing within a year. But we've seen, I think, last year, the economy only shrugged by a tiny percentage. And this year, it's projected to grow 3%. Yes, I think the the damage to the Russian economy is structural and generational. They've certainly been, and he's certainly been able to prop it up with shadow oil networks and presumably funding from elsewhere to fund the military expansion. I'd be really cautious about drawing conclusions from, say, Russian GDP numbers, because when you decide to spend 20% of GDP, of your last year's GDP on the military, as they have, the G in GDP goes... (laughs) Uh, like the government expenditure bit goes through the roof. You can stimulate a lot of economic activity if you're willing to throw huge amounts of money at the military, for example. That doesn't necessarily mean your economy is going gangbusters. But the point more broadly of of Russia's economy not being strangled to the point of being unable to continue the war effort stands. And I think, Helen, that's where you're getting at is that we that when the EU said, hey, you're not going to be able to send any oil to us and, and the US slapped yeah. sanctions everywhere and put the, the price cap on oil, the idea was at some point over the next 6 to 12 to maybe 18 months, your economy will grind to a point and you will not be able to prosecute the war. Like you simply, will, and that's, that's not happened. That hasn't happened. And I don't think that's going to happen in the next year or so. Whereas I think like the structural damage to Russia's economy will come over general years. Yes, he's fucked the country for a generation. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, the war is still going to continue. It's probably going to come to some kind of either, as you say, like ceasefire or some kind of talks before then. So I think he's got enough gas to take him to the point where they have to do something about the Ukrainian war. And I don't know what that's going to look like. So politically, though... (laughs) And Dimitri, I'd be interested in this view too, because you've set out two sides that aren't, the Venn diagrams don't overlap in terms of ending this at the moment. We know, I've been a little bit surprised how resilient Putin has been politically. Obviously he's going to get reelected. I use the word reelected really very loosely. So he's not going anywhere absent something remarkable, like another Prigozhin kind of thing. Do we need a different president of Ukraine before those kind of preconditions can be redrawn? Like in a sort of Churchillian way, like you need the guy who did something. You need to reset the you need to reset the chessboard in a way before you can have a conversation. It's hard to see again because in order for that to happen, the next president has to effectively run. This isn't something you could do without a mandate. So what we're imagining here is a Ukrainian presidential election which is already functionally impossible under the current rules of the national emergency legislation. But let's skip over how hard it would be to actually run an election in Ukraine. And during a period of national emergency, it's illegal, so they'd have to amend the national emergency rules. But let's assume you, you have an election. You would have to have a candidate that basically runs on doing a ceasefire deal with Putin and wins. Right. Which you would politically dress up as ending the war. Yeah, of course. But ending the war, not on Ukraine's terms. Right. At the moment, and this could always change, at the moment, opinion polling in Ukraine suggests that such a candidate would get heavy rocks thrown at his head. So we're not there yet. So the Ukrainian public is not there yet. And opinion polling has consistently shown that they're not there yet. And they may never get there. We we don't know. Yeah, they have a lot of reasons to be angry. And I think they also, they saw what happened in Bukha, so they're not particularly keen about leaving Ukrainian territory in Russian hands. 
more more pertinently than that, they fundamentally do not trust any ceasefire Putin signs to be anything but a rearmament. Yep. Mm. And you can judge that however you like. I personally tend to agree with that. Yeah, view. me too. And you can ask Prigozhin how he feels about Putin guarantees. Well, we can't, but that's the point. Yeah. So from that perspective, I think it would be difficult to imagine a resetting of the board that actually produces a, a candidate that's conducive to that. At the moment, the sentiment you see in Ukraine is if the Western support is cut off and we have to like literally retreat into the forests and knife these guys one by one in their beds, let's, let's do that. All right. Let me put you both on the spot. You're... So let rides off into the sunset because he's had enough and God knows he must have had about two, year, two, two lifetimes worth of stress in two years. Um, you're taking his place, exactly the same dynamics that he's facing today. What is, what is your plan? What do you, are you just going, okay, I'm going to tell my people that we're continuing this until as long, like a hundred years war. Like it, if that's what it is, that's what it is. Like we are now a country that is in perpetual war until Putin gives us what he, what we want, which maybe that will happen, but it doesn't seem likely. And you're also facing the specter of perhaps running out of cash if not tomorrow, if not six months from now, the West isn't going to be funding Ukraine like this in 2030. Like it's just not, in my view. So what are you doing? What strategy are you thinking? I, you would have to continue with this sort of existing strategy on the one hand, right? Like continuing to lobby, continue to go to the UN, continue to go to states that you think might be keen to see you, or at least just to get a photo up with you to say that they've met with Ukraine and that they care about democracy because they met with Ukraine. But I think I would start thinking about and. This is not off. I'm just going to say this anyway, but I would start thinking about really asymmetric underhand tactics about ways that we could take out like key an insurgency people. or an anti-occupation. Yeah. Thing. yeah, absolutely. Like guerrilla warfare, right? Going to what Dim's point earlier about like going into the forest and like, don't want to encourage violence, not to incite in violence. But like, I think that ship the, sailed, the Helen. If the Ukraine war goes, I hope this doesn't turn violent. Yeah, What's I hope everyone's okay. Yeah, exactly. Look, I, I would probably do some kind of insurgency moves because if you've seen in the past where there's been a stalemate, it's always been insurgents whether that come through and made some kind of breakthrough in the past. And I so, think this so it's is, a national policy of resistance rather resistance. than yeah. kind of battle in a war, like in a sort of tank warfare sense. It's more, okay, they're there. That's the reality. We're going to try and make the rest of the country as not normal, but as functional as possible and we will yeah, never to stop we will never stop okay dimitri what would your strategy and not just war strategy like what's your political view what terms would you have for ending this i think ukraine's only at this moment is basically to outlast russia and that is the sort of thing that sounds impossible until you do it like afghanistan does it did it it's not impossible empires do lose and lose the will to fight. I think it's important to remember that in Russia, opinion polls will say different things, but the overwhelming sentiment is they don't care. It's not that no, they're the not Russian people don't insulated care, from that reality. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. Not, the Russian public yeah. as a whole is not invested in this war in the way the Ukrainian public is. They're not prepared to take to the streets and burn the Kremlin down to stop it. They're not even necessarily prepared to really protest it and take the risks involved in large numbers. But this is not, a, by and large, a war that the Russian public overwhelmingly really wants to happen and see. 
They are bored of it. If you watched again, uh, Putin's performance today at the Q and A, there were very few questions about, of go and get them. People were clearly, they're not bored of it. They don't like it. They don't like the war. It is not, there's not a great yearning. And Russia is, I know their economy hasn't collapsed and their army's still functioning. They are losing obscene numbers of men and equipment. There's a reason they've got tanks from the 1950s on the battle lines now rather than T-90s. They are sustaining huge levels of damage and expense in order to sustain this. So I think if I were an incoming president of, uh, of Ukraine, I would be like, listen, the West, you guys are not giving us what we need in order to make a real breakthrough because you consider that to be in too escalatory a risk. Ukraine has been asking for F-16s since I think before I was born, it feels. The first F-16 still has not taken off from a Ukrainian airfield. The West has provided a lot of support, but it's been very cautious in the type of support, the, the modernity of the support, the quantity of support, things like the cluster munitions came in comparatively small packages, the long-range missiles came in double-digit numbers, all that kind of thing. So gone, okay. We're not going to achieve some heroic, there's not going to be a tank charge that drives all the way to Rostov. What we are going to do is make these people's lives hell, and we are going to make them pay for every goddamn inch of Ukrainian territory until they just don't want it anymore. And we're going to bet that the Ukrainian will and the will of our supporters ultimately outlasts the fact that Putin really wants this done. Okay, so let me, and we've got to wrap pretty soon, but I, I think it's very interesting. So what, it, it doesn't have the capability to do that without Western support. Like it, like not on a large scale, it goes more to Helen's kind of insurgency, but it can't do a lot of the things that you framed there outlasting on any kind of wide scale military without West. Maybe I'm wrong, but it strikes me as it can't. So if Western support dries up, what's the play? I'm not sure that's a thousand percent true. Um, after all, it held Kiev basically before most Western support had arrived. It held Kiev largely with a couple of plane loads of anti-tank shoulder-fired missiles from the UK. But I think the reality now is very different to a botched aerial assault with a fresh country and a full I mean, it was also a 70-kilometer tank column heading down the road. Russia has not proven that it is hugely capable of massively coordinated offensive operations. It still hasn't. Um, no. It's lost a lot of the equipment that you would use to facilitate that kind of thing. Ukraine's kind of drones and warfare has gotten more sophisticated. So I don't, if Western support dries up or at least tapers off, I don't know that the Ukrainian frontline collapses all the way back to Viv. I think they could still sustain a pretty bloody defense, especially over prepared ground. Though, yeah, it would be really hard. The other option is if Russia starts making significant breakthroughs, maybe the taps get turned down again. Maybe one of the things that has led the front to dry up is the West doesn't believe Ukraine can retake eastern Ukraine, but it also doesn't necessarily believe that Russia is going to threaten Kharkiv, Odessa, or Kiev again. And if you did see Russian breakthroughs, maybe that wakes some people up in Berlin. Get Germany to send some helmets again. Helen, any final thoughts on this topic before we go to something a little bit more light? I, I leave this conversation a little bit, to, if I'm perfectly honest with you both, I think I'm not as optimistic that Ukraine can 
outlast Russia. I'm not as optimistic that they could fight a guerrilla war at scale that changes the things, but I, I hope that's the truth. But any final thoughts? I agree with that, John, but I would just say, I will end on this, right? I think that we have to push against despair, right? The, the case against despair, this was like an op-ed in the New Yorker that I read earlier last month. And I think that's something that I want to get people to, to think about over the holidays is that the situation sucks, but you have to keep thinking about, we have to keep talking about it. And I think this podcast that we've done this episode is really important because obviously there's been a lot of world events that have happened that have meant that in the new cycle, Ukraine, Russia situation has dropped out. But the very real sort of consequences of wherever Russia takes this war is going to impact us all. So I would just, as we enter into the holidays, like hope that we can think about the case against despair and to be hopeful about next year. Good place to leave it. All right. Now we always end with a little bit of a sorbet <laughs> or we try to, we, we had one week where the sorbet tasted frankly like shit because we all came up with even more grim things, but we're, we're on the same page now. So Dimitri, when you're at, a, when, when you're at your festive Geneva dinner parties with your pinky in the air and a glass of champagne, what small talk are you uh, bringing up to get through the evening? So I have been obsessed this week with the vibe session. Are you familiar with this, folks? I, I am not. No. I don't think you're surprised to hear you're that lucky. I'm not. <laughs> you, you exist on corners of Twitter far better than the ones in which I live. Uh, <laughs> effectively, this is the uh, a kind of giant debate and argument and conversation that's been happening where this is focused on the US. You have this situation where by large macroeconomic metrics, by how we normally measure an economy, the US economy is doing really well. But when you ask people, they're incredibly depressed about the economy, which can happen. It's normal. But what's super weird about what's going on right now is that people who say they personally have had an amazing year will still say the economy sucks. And so there has been an amazing debate going back and forth where basically one policy nerd called Will Stansel has taken on pretty much the entire internet to make the case that there is a social media and vibes-driven negativity about the overall economy that is basically just everyone telling everyone else that the economy sucks until it becomes unfashionable to pretend otherwise, even though unemployment 3%, inflation's down, real wages have grown against inflation, those kind of stuff. And it has been the most fascinating giant nerd fight that has now led to Ben Bernanke was asked about this. The New York Times is talking about it. And it's this new concept that has just like organically been pushed straight out of Twitter of charts versus fields. So wait, it's called the vibe check. Is that what it is? This sounds like a Gen Z situation where they're like, what's a vibe check on the economy? Like it's cap. Oh, it's mid, as my team told me all the time. Anyway, but I appreciate that, Dim. Look, I, I think what <laughs> I would... Mids, Helen, clearly... That was my review. Helen, you are mid. I was like, what? Anyway, it means that you are average and you are not great. That's From your team? Your team said that? I hope you immediately fired them on the spot. <laughs> I immediately went to cry in the corner like all millennials do and then pretend that everything was okay. And then took a Harry, which Harry Potter house quiz are you, right? Just to, Correct. That's yeah. right. Just to continue to be chewy because that's what I am. Look, I this week were, would be talking about the Google trend which I know that John hates me talking about because I, once a Googler, always a Googler. I think it's the trends feature on Google is fantastic. So at the end of each year, Google search like puts out this additional website that captures all of the different trends that were topped, topping sort of different categories around the world. 
And this year's 2023 trends, I just want to bring out a few, were in terms of top search terms. We had people like, unfortunately, Matthew Perry in the top passings. In the news, it was like war in Israel and Gaza, sadly. Randomly, the Titanic was like number two, that Titanic submarine of like all the different things that were searched in the world. And then this was my favorite, the fact that in movies, in the top five, it included John Wick chapter four. So this is, a, this is how the world is okay when there are people searching all the right terms. But if you're interested, go in and take a look. You can put in your own like local sort of uh, geographies wherever you are, and then it comes up with all the random search terms. So, and everyone in DC apparently is really worried about yeah the air quality here, which I don't know. Having lived in Beijing growing up, I think we're doing okay. Yeah, yeah, big time. Mine very quickly is more interesting than and and raises questions than it is uplifting. But it's this news that OpenAI has struck a deal with the German publisher Axel Springer to access its business titles. So Business Insider, part of Business Insider now is Morning Brew, who folks will know, Build in Germany. They're they're all under Axel Springer. And OpenAI has struck a deal to get near real-time access to their journalism and use it in ChatGPT's answers. So basically have a news function and then have a link to the original story. The details are obviously fairly tightly held, but it looks like Axel Springer will receive a, a large payment for kind of the back catalog. And then in the tens of millions of euros a year for the access to their content, their real-time content, and OpenAI gets to tell people what's going on in its native format. And I think it's very interesting because it's it raises so many questions. Obviously, the first reaction in media to AI was like, oh my God, you're going to eat our lunch. And I think that's probably a fair reaction. And then media companies are grappling with what to do about AI. But there is always this dynamic of a first mover's advantage and to make hay while the sun shines kind of idea. And I just wonder whether Axel Springer is, that's very, it's a media company, it's profitable, but tens of millions of euros a year plus a one-off payment is game-changing for any media organization. That's a lot of cash. And I just wonder whether they are being a little bit cynical in being like, maybe this isn't the best thing to do Maybe the best thing for the news industry, for the media industry, would be to hold the line and prevent language models from having our content and training on our content and be able to formulate answers based on our content. But because it's a game theory question, we get the most benefits if we break first and we strike this deal and that excludes the rest of them. But I'm also not a Luddite, so I'm interested to see if they're able to manage this kind of this thing. But I think the one big thing is GPT is going to learn how to mimic news articles in a way that it can't right now, or it'll get better at mimicking news articles because it'll have a new corpus of actual stuff that's happening. So I predict there's going to be some interesting stories next year about, oh, that story that you just read on ChatGPT that said it was from Politico wasn't, and it sounded exactly like it, but that never happened. And there's going to be some issues there. But I also am not in the weeds enough to know how that'll be managed, but I think it's a story to watch anyway. I'm I'm mostly concerned that now ChatGPT is going to have real-time access to Politico's information on who was just seen at a DC steakhouse with a second tier <laughs> congressman. Like that. And they're also going to know, like, when it's Helen's birthday or whatever. So <laughs> the, the two vital functions that Politico plays. It would be deeply human if generative AI just descended into a faster, more technically able version of the mirror or something like that. <laughs> the Daily oh, Mirror. To- I a would gossip love that. rag. Yeah, exactly. Page six, bring more of that. Take down the Murdoch press. (laughs) All right. With that, I think we're running a little over. Thank you both for that. I think that was a fantastic conversation. I I think there's so much we can unpick on Ukraine, but I think it's really important that people still are thinking about this stuff and it's not on the front pages. It's, there's not, 
the military focus on the military kind of updates and the hardware, but the dynamics are so important and they will, by well, from what you guys said, they're going to continue to be important for a long time. So thank you very much, Dimitri. Appreciate it. And Helen, appreciate it. Thank Thanks you, John. Pleasure.